As human beings, we spend a lot of our time stuck, mired in things like isolation and addiction, regret and resentment, bigotry and abuse. The list of things that weigh down a human life is lengthy and wearisome. But when freedom finally comes, it often appears in unexpected ways and from unexpected places. The Stuck Audio Project is about preserving and pondering those stories of liberation. We believe that by hearing and receiving the stories of others, we open our hearts to the forces of change. The stories you'll hear on the Stuck Podcast come from ordinary people, reflecting on their daily journeys with Christ. On the journey of life, some have come far, and some still have a long way to go. None of them are perfect, but all of them have had genuine tastes of freedom. Today's entry comes from Rolf. As you listen to his story, with its highs and lows, twists and turns, consider how his narrative might intersect with your own. My name's Rolf Jacobson, and I uh, grew up in uh, junior and senior high school. I lived in a town called Northfield. Uh, my uh, dad was a local pastor, and I was 15 years old, uh, and I was really an active kid. My sister and I that summer had gone on a bike ride, a uh, three-day bike ride, biking over to Wisconsin and back. might have been four days. I can't remember. And on the last leg of the trip, about uh, 10 miles from home, I couldn't, I couldn't go anymore. Um, it, this would have been in July. And uh, my, uh, my right leg had started to hurt, so I had to call from a payphone and have my dad come and get me. Then the fall went on as normal. I actually went to tennis camp, but I, start, I was experiencing problems at tennis camp, too, uh, where I could, just couldn't run, didn't have the energy to run, uh, like to jog a mile or something. Well, fall went on, and I went to the doctor a couple times. Then I got confirmed the last Sunday in October, and three weeks later, um, on a Sunday afternoon, my dad pulled our neighbor, who was our family doctor, uh, over and said, there's something uh, I want you to look at in Rolf's leg. That night, my parents well, went out to dinner with my aunt and uncle, and um, the doctor came over, and he said, let's go to the hospital. I want to get an x-ray of your leg. Are your parents home? I said, no. He said, well, let's just go, because in those days, you could do that. The doctor just took me, and on his own authority, x-rayed my leg. He came back late that night after my parents. I'm sure he was watching for my parents to get home, and uh, he said, uh, that there's a tumor in Rolf's leg. Long story short... The next day we went to Mayo Clinic, and two days later on Wednesday, I had my first amputation. I had bone cancer. So over the next years, uh, I had something like over 20 surgeries. I actually got a second primary incidence of the same disease uh, in my left leg, which I think was the first instance of that ever happening on record of the same person getting, getting this disease twice. I think it's uh, last I heard there was 10 or nine other people it happened to, and um the cancer spread to my lungs. I had radiation and chemotherapy. I graduated from high school on time somehow, and I went to college. When I started college, I was still driving monthly down to Mayo Clinic uh, in Rochester, Minnesota for CT scans, and uh, the CT scans kept coming back negative. And after a while, they said, well, you can come back every three months. And then after three years of this, just going back and forth for CT scans, I had one scare where they said, we think we see something. Why don't you come back in a month? Well, that turned out to be nothing. 
And then in the summer after my junior year in college, which was then three years since my last um, surgery for cancer, the doctor said when I was down there just by myself uh, get, getting a regular checkup, the doctor said, well, according to our statistics, um, you're in the clear. This, uh, it's, it appears that the cancer is gone. And that was a moment for me that, um, strangely enough, uh, at that moment, I remember going home and a friend of mine named Julie said to me, well, no excuses now. That was a moment that then my identity changed in, in, in a subtle way, which was because my identity, I didn't even know it, but for six years, my identity had been, I'm the guy who's fighting cancer. And now I was no longer the guy who was fighting cancer. I was the guy who used to have cancer and now didn't have legs. So what's the future going to be like? I was so focused through those years on fighting the cancer and, and achieving basic success in life, graduate from high school barely and, you know, and move on, that I then kind of wondered, well, now what's life going to be? And, and frankly, at that time, it was, oh, now I have to uh, actually have a life. And so that was uh, a new thing, which is what's my identity now? The, now, the great thing for me was I, that wasn't my only identity. Um, I had a deeper identity, a deeper identity as a child of God and as someone uh, with a great family and friends, uh, friends around him. So I had those deeper identities, child of God, family person, friend, so that when this other identity that had dominated my life, fighting cancer guy, um, was gone, I still had those other things, deeper identities, to kind of be able to wade into that uncertainty. Can you talk about the early days of receiving that news uh, about cancer when you were a young man and just kind of in retrospect, what was it like to settle into that new reality? Well, it all happened so fast. On Monday, uh, would have been November 17th, 1980, uh, we went down to Mayo Clinic and I was just all day long going through tests. And by the end of the day, I was exhausted. The last sort of, you know, it's test to, to make sure your heart's good enough for surgery. It's all these tests, a lot of blood tests, x-rays and CT scans, um, trying to find out if, the, uh, if there's disease elsewhere in the body. And uh, the, the last couple of consultations were with the surgeon and the oncologist. And the surgeon walked into the room and he was world famous and... Uh, he just sat down and he put the x-ray in the, in the light uh, screen and he said, um, we have a problem. Pointed to the x-ray, this is cancer. Tomorrow you'll check into the hospital and on Wednesday we will amputate this limb and your son will live a normal life. I said this to my parents. Well, you can imagine that was quite a shock. And then it was, okay, let's do that. Let's, let's go. Well, then they, then they send us to the oncologist and the oncologists go, well, you know, it's not always cancer, but it was. And the surgeon knew what he was talking about. And the oncologists try to, you know, ease the thing because oncologists are, are doctors with feelings. For the most part, orthopedic surgeons aren't known for their feelings. 
I think it's probably a defensive mechanism against literally having to cut into people daily. So it was really a, let's get going. Let's do it. I never felt angry. I, I found out since, you know, the, the old um, model of the cycle of grief that people go through, you know, denial, anger, bargaining, you know, uh, whatever the other stages are. It's really not that accurate. Not everybody goes through every stage. I mean, it's sort of helpful as a, as a broad interpretive thing so that when someone's angry, you can go, oh, this is a normal phase that people go through. But not everybody goes through every phase or in order. So I think it's um, the, the early days where, you know, it happened so fast. I don't remember anything from when, that Wednesday except getting up uh, and a, a getting into a, uh, getting onto the gurney and um, talking to a stranger, a, a stranger about uh, what we were both going to go into and him saying at the end, God bless you. That, w- that was meaningful to me. How did, how did all this change your family relationships and dynamics? Well, it's really interesting. The, um, I once said to my sister, Karen, who's older than me, my two sisters are older and I have a younger brother. And I said to my sister, Karen, some years later, five, six years later, you know, well, you know, I was the one who had cancer. And she said, no, the whole family had cancer, which I thought was really wise, a, a great insight. And even just yesterday, I was talking to my brother, who now is, you know, he's 50, I'm 55. And he, um, he talked to, he was just talking to me. He says, you know, when our, when our family was dealing with this, this cancer thing, and so it was, it, everybody had to deal with it their own way. And I don't know how the other folks, my other sister, Anne, when it happened, was um, doing a semester in Thailand. And so she, you know, she, in those days, 1980, she got a telegram. Actually, the telegram went to her college advisor who was leading the trip. It was a group trip to Thailand. And so then he went and told her, and then she, she was able to make one brief long distance calls. I remember it might've been two, but I think it was one just to call and kind of say hi. And then after that, you know, what she remembers is then, you know, for the next six weeks till she got home, she never heard from us again. That's how she remembers it. Um, but cause you know, we were swept up with, you know, the healthcare, what they do is they get you moving, right? So the, you wake up, I remember then waking up Thursday. I don't remember anything from the rest of that Wednesday. And I, I remember, you know, the person that come, came in and found me and, and then they immediately try to get you up. The first thing they do is get you to sit up. When they can, they get you to stand up. They immediately get you down to physical therapy to learn to walk on crutches. And as soon as the, as soon as the swelling, they teach you how to wrap your stump. Uh, and then they start to fit you for the artificial leg right away. I mean, it's just, you know, part of it is just psychological, you know, do things, you know. It's a, it was a whirlwind. A couple of weeks later, I was back in high school. You know, I started going in the afternoons at first and then full days. And I remember the first day I got back, my, my, my German teacher, who was all of our favorite teacher, you know, he had a cake for us, you know, for the whole class. But, you know, I remember they spelled my name wrong. It was hilarious. You know, he ordered it from the bakery downtown, I'm sure. And instead of R-O-L-F, they spelled it R-O-L-S. I remember that funny joke. And he thought it was hilarious. You know, he made a joke out of it. But uh, so, yeah, you know, it's just uh, it's a whirlwind. Uh, of um, getting going. And then six months later, the, the cancer um, had spread to my lungs, or maybe it was four months later, four to five months later. And uh, then, so then it was, okay, start having lung surgeries. I had two lung surgeries that spring. 
more that summer. They start chemotherapy, and uh, then the next fall, it's in the next leg. And so it was, it was a real grind, I'd have to say. You mentioned earlier, Rolf, uh, a conversation with your friend Julie in college. I think it was in college. Were there other kind of turning point encounters that you've had throughout your life that have, you know, kind of pushed your mental, emotional furniture around a bit that have, have really changed how you think about your life and vocation in the world? Oh, absolutely. You know, there's so many that I could point to, you know, um, great moments where little things, you know, really change your life. One, it, one was I was thinking of going to seminary uh, to become a pastor. And, but I was in a wheelchair and the, the church buildings that I grew up with, the, the front of the church all had a bunch of steps, right? It was always elevated. Uh, we'll just call it the front of the church. Okay, it's called a chancel. Uh, the, the chancel is always elevated back in those days, steps up there and then more steps up into the pulpit where you preach. And I, I just didn't know if I, could, if, there was, if I could be a pastor. And I remember telling it to a friend who was uh, actually not a, not a person of faith at all, named Scott. And he goes, well, of course you can do it. And that just was a really affirming moment. And I was like, yeah, of course I can do it. And, uh, you know, and then, you know, there's so many moments like that. There, uh, you know, another moment was I, uh, because I had um, missed so much high school, I missed a third of the class days of high school, but I graduated um, just barely with the minimum number of um uh, credits plus a half a credit for driver's ed. I think you had to have like 15 credits and I had 15 and a half or something. So I, you know, and uh, although I did well on the ACT or whatever, I, I I started college and I was not in the honors program. And then I did pretty well my first uh, semester. And so uh, a guy named Pat, might've been my second semester, a friend of mine I'd met named Pat said, you should be in the honors program because he was. I said, okay. So he took me and he took me to see the, uh, basically the uh, academic advisor to the student body, Father Lavin. And Father Lavin said, uh, Pat said, this is Rolf, he should be in the honors program. And, I, and uh, Father Lavin looked at my grades and he said, yeah, it had to be after first semester. He, because he said, well, if you did it once, you can do it again. You're in. And so then I had, then I was in the honors program. And that was, you know, that little moment that changes your life because then I had all these great honors classes that uh, were only available to honor students. That's a great story. Were there any kind of young man's dreams that um, maybe, I guess you could say, died on the operating table? Well, you know, the, the, the worst thing about losing your legs is um, the things you can't do. And first of all, it's the things you used to do that you loved. For me, uh, the number one thing was playing tennis. But it was also things just uh, being in the marching band. It was skiing I used to do. And then the next thing is all the basic day-to-day -day stuff that you can't uh, help your family. Oh, you know, I need help. Okay, well, I can do that. I'll carry that downstairs for you. You, know, you kind of feel useless sometimes. So uh, an identity change uh, has to take place and that's really painful right that oh i'm not a tennis player anymore i'm not a skier anymore when the friends get together to go do those things you all you can do is observe which is worse than not so you just would rather actually not be a part of it and uh so there's a uh, a lot of being left out that happens to 
to anybody with uh, any big difference in disability, physical disability. So yeah, a, a lot of that changed. Uh, a lot of that changed, and that that lent the, uh, to a lot of the struggles. You know, the one of the hardest things was just when I had that moment of after junior year in college, being told you're cured, thinking, okay, now I'd never been afraid of death, but I was afraid of life. I wasn't stupid. I, uh, I wasn't smart enough to be afraid of death, um, but I was at that point suddenly smart enough to be afraid of life. What's life going to be like for a guy with no legs? Uh, will I find a wife? Will I find a job that's meaningful? Will I be able to find a place to live? I mean, because in those days, you know, uh, the world was much less handicapped accessible in North America than it is today. Will I find purpose and meaning? All those sorts of, those big life questions uh, were uh, overwhelming, I would have to almost say. You know, I think a lot of people, when they make that transition from high school to college, you know, high school is itself a meat grinder. Uh, you know, there are ways that a person's hardened and identity is sort of formed and everything. But then going off to college often forces some of those deeply held insecurities to kind of resurface in different ways just because it's new environment and all of that. What was that transition like for you going from high school where you had, you know, had your surgeries and then going into college as a, as a person in, in a wheelchair? And I mean, what was that kind of transition like? The transition to college was funny and really great in a lot of ways, but in a couple of ways. One would, one was that my parents, uh, my dad had a sabbatical as a pastor. He got three months, uh, might have been four, to go study in Scotland uh, at the University of St. Andrews. And uh, so my they went at the end of July. And uh, so my best friend's parents moved me to college. That's the kind of confidence, I guess, that my parents showed in me, that they went on and lived their life and figure, uh, expected me to get myself to college, and they knew, they knew the community would help me. I was fortunate that I had a high school acquaintance, he was not a friend yet, named Kevin, who um, I, he was going to be going to the same college I was, and I asked if he'd be interested in rooming with me, and he agreed, so I didn't. I mean, that's kind of one of the ways I coped, which is I didn't want to have to meet a stranger uh, being in a wheelchair and totally get to know somebody. So Kevin and I roomed together, um, and that was really helpful. So the school I went to was fantastic about, and it's one of the reasons I went there, is um, they were so great about uh, making sure I had an accessible uh, dorm room and uh making sure all my classes were moved if I needed them moved because not every classroom building uh, was accessible in those days. You know, it, then you find, you find your people, and I was able to find my people and uh, be surrounded by great, uh, and it was a Christian college, uh, and that was, that was very meaningful, and find some mentors and folks to, uh, you know, kind of go on the journey with me. One of the things that happened, you know, having lost so many things that I liked to do, you know, that I, I uh, as I mentioned, played tennis, skied, played, uh, marched in the marching band, um, couldn't do those things anymore. So you have to find new uh, spaces to uh, or new things. And one of the things that I did was I really picked up the guitar 
at that point, and I became, of course, not surprisingly, an avid reader at that time. I had been a casual reader, I think, beforehand. And there was, uh, there was a particular moment that really uh, I still celebrate to this day, because it's coming up now in 40 years uh, since I was first diagnosed. And the, the moment was when they were trying to save my second leg. Uh, essentially, I was stuck in bed um, from November through April of uh, my junior year in high school. Right at the start of that, when they were, they were radiating, radiating the tumor, and then they, they put in an artificial knee, which was where the tumor in my left leg was, my dad's friend Jerry came down and took us out for dinner. Um, and I didn't want to go because I, I felt so miserable. I didn't want to go, but he forced me to go. And I, I, I tell the story at length. Uh, sometimes I won't do that uh, now, but that experience of really not wanting to go and then getting to this restaurant, and um, Jerry ordered for us all. He said, we're all having ribs. And then he, that moment, that meal turned out to be, to me, the, 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 the best moment of the worst part of my life. And I still just remember that it, it's in my memory. It's, it's a little puddle of light in that dark winter. And so every 10 years now, still, I get together. He died since, but his widow is still with us. And every 10 years now, we still, uh, around that anniversary, we still go out and have ribs together. And I still do it now. I include some of my new, uh, my, my lifelong friends. And that, I think that's really important. First of all, the power of a meal, of a feast, and the power of memory and marking anniversaries, I think, is really important to, to a lot of people who uh, have struggled with cancer. Rolf, this is great. That is a really powerful story. <laughs> Such good content. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to The Stuck Podcast. We want to invite you to engage this material even further through the show notes below. There you'll find a series of questions, prompts, and biblical texts that will invite you to reflect on how God is at work in your life and to think even more deeply on the places where you might, in fact, be stuck. Thanks again for listening.